Let's get into our message today. Let me pray for us. It's got a, just a thick, dense, challenging, good, meaty message. So I'm going to pray that our minds and hearts are ready to absorb. Um, so join me. Lord, this morning, uh, we invite you. You're already here, but we invite you to speak to us. Use your word to challenge our minds and hearts, God, to change us and shape us. Help us to be and become the people you want us to be. Use this, this, this message, Lord, this passage. Help us to understand it and see it and apply it in ways that will advance you and us and then through us, you and the world. That's our prayer together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 20, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If not, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you or under your seat, or you can follow along on the screen. Today, we're going to be on page 854 in one of those uh, Bibles. If you're new with us, we have for some time been following the story of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. And as we are nearing the end of this story, we are discovering that the challenge and the intensity are on the rise. Jesus has come into Jerusalem and his conflict with the religious leaders, with the political establishment of his day, it's begun to escalate. And amidst this rising tension and in many ways causing it, is Jesus' claim to be king. He comes not just as a great teacher, not just as a rabbi, but he comes as one who says, I am king, not just of Israel, but of all creation. And I long to be king of every single human heart. And today, Jesus gets into yet another tangle with the religious leaders, but this time, it's with a different group, a different group of leaders called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are a group that Jesus hasn't yet interacted much with up to this point, mainly because the bulk of Jesus' ministry has been up in the north, up in a region called Galilee, or the Galilee, where he has been teaching and conducting his ministry with the more country rule peasant folks where he was from. You can see on the map there a region in the north called Galilee. That was the northern edge of Israel, Nazareth, where Jesus was raised. Uh, Jesus has now moved, however, south down into Judea. And now he's in the capital city. Now Jesus is in the more sophisticated part of the country. And this is where a group called the Sadducees like to hang out. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Sadducees this morning because understanding the Sadducees, who they are and what they represent, it will radically shape our understanding of this passage and help us grasp what I believe God wants to teach us this morning. So the Sadducees. Sadducees were actually the exact opposite of a group we talk about around here sometimes called the Pharisees. Um, Jesus is constantly in conflict with the Pharisees. Today, it's with the Sadducees. Uh, The Pharisees were sort of like the religious conservatives of Jesus' day. The Sadducees are the religious liberals of Jesus' day. And Jesus butts heads with both groups. Um, This is maybe a bit of an overstatement, but not much. Uh, To put it in sort of our modern terms, you might say, the Pharisees were from the red states... And the Sadducees are from the blue states. The Pharisees hung out primarily in conservative rural areas, and the Sadducees were from the liberal urban centers. Another way, the Pharisees were sometimes like the non-denominational Bible church folk, 
And the Sadducees were more like the Methodists or Episcopalians of our day. Now, again, those categories do not always apply, and those are broad brushes, but it'll help you kind of get a sense for um, these two groups, and specifically the group we're talking about today, the Sadducees. Now, one thing about Cedar Mill that's interesting is we don't fit into any of these categories real cleanly, right? We're in a blue state, in a very urban, uh, liberal center, kind of city center, but we're also part of a more conservative Bible church, and so... Um, Here's the good news. As Jesus attacks and um, refutes and challenges Pharisees and Sadducees, he's probably going to catch us in both categories. So when Jesus wants to argue and wrestle and change and challenge and shape us through a lot of pain, he's going to do that um, in both directions for many of us here at Cedar Mill. On to the Sadducees. Sadducees were the wealthy, privileged, educated aristocratic families who had a place in society of tremendous status, honor, and wealth. Remember that. It's really important. They were primarily upper-class folks in Jewish society, and they they practiced a faith, but they practiced a very stripped-down, intellectual version of Judaism. They believed in the Bible, they believed in Scripture, but in, a, in kind of a nuanced way. They didn't believe in the whole Bible, they didn't believe in the whole Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books, only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they rejected everything that was supernatural. Anything that was supernatural, they sort of rationalized or reasoned away. Uh, they did not believe, for example, in resurrection, which we'll come back to in a bit. They did not believe in a future judgment day. They certainly didn't believe that there was going to be a coming Messiah, this savior of the world or of the nation. And so all this banter, all this noise and hubbub in Jerusalem right now about Jesus possibly being the Christ, the savior, the chosen one, the Messiah, they sort of snubbed their nose at that. It was all just a big joke to them. And you're going to see how unseriously they take that claim and take Jesus, even in the question that they ask him. Here's what the Sadducees said. If you kind of put a statement on the Sadducees. They'd say, you know, we believe in God, but we believe this world is all there is for us. And the purpose of life is just to be a good person. And a good person is kind of very relative and open to your interpretation Anything having to do do with the supernatural to them, it was just a myth. And so here's Jesus today going head-to-head with the Sadducees. And again, probably the most important thing about them for our conversation today and for what Jesus will address is this fact that they do not believe in resurrection, that this world around us for Sadducees is all there is. There is no eternal life. There is no afterlife. And Jesus will take them on... Um, in and around this point this morning. We'll notice that right away in our passage, Luke makes this explicit. He introduces us to the Sadducees with a little tagline to say, and here's what we're going to talk about today. Verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, i.e. clue, foreshadowing, this is what we're really going to hone in on today, came to Jesus with a question. In other words, Jesus is going to talk with us today about resurrection. True or false? And why believing in or not believing in resurrection matters so much. In fact, the title of my message today is Resurrection Implications. The implications for believing in the resurrection or discarding it. 
So now, without further ado, let's get to the question these Sadducees offered Jesus. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her? Let me, let me explain what's going on here because um, this is a strange, strange little kind of word puzzle the Sadducees offer Jesus. It seems weird to us. But you have to understand that with this question, the Sadducees are not only trying to trap Jesus, they're making fun of Jesus. They're trying to publicly humiliate him. And what they're saying is this, Oh, Jesus, you simple-minded, uneducated, conservative peasant rabbi, who believes in the resurrection anymore these days? Who still believes in the supernatural anymore? We've got logic and reason and science Who still um, kind of buys into all that stuff? That's just for primitive people. That's just a crutch for weak-minded individuals, this whole afterlife thing. And just to show you how crazy it is, Jesus, here's a, a silly situation to point it out, to point out how silly belief in the afterlife really is. Let's walk through it. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no kids... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is where it gets really weird. Uh, This is where uh, people start thinking, I knew the Bible was strange. I knew that this, this book and this religion was just way off base because what's this whole deal about having to marry your brother's wife if your brother dies? How many guys in here have a brother? I have a brother. I have a younger brother. All right. How many guys in here have a brother who's married? Yep, see, it's starting to get awkward, isn't it? Now, like, you're thinking, like, don't go there, Pastor Day. I'm not gonna. I'll just leave it there. But that's what you're thinking. Like, this is a really strange law that they're talking about. Um, let me talk to you about it just for a second. Let me explain it a bit. The Sadducees are actually referencing a law here that was very common, not just in, in, uh, Judaism, but all throughout the ancient world. It was called the Leverate Law, or Leverate Marriage. And the term actually comes from the Latin word um, lever, which means husband's brother. So it's a descriptive term. And listen to this. At its core, at its root, lever at marriage was meant to ensure the care of widows. You see, widowed women in the ancient world were extremely vulnerable. And one thing this law makes sure of is that they will be taken care of that they won't be cast aside, that they will be able to stay in their home and on the family land and as a part of the family that they married into. It creates security for a very vulnerable group. Now, this seems kind of strange to us, um, but given this very patriarchal culture, given the culture into which this law was offered, it was actually a, a, a very humane thing. There's a very humane element to this law. However... Over time, as sometimes happens, there were some other aspects of this law that began to eclipse God's central, caring, loving purpose for it. People started to use it with some other motives, both of which we will see are extremely important to the the Sadducees, which is how this all ties together. 
First of all, two, two things, people, two ways people tried to use this law and started using it. First, this law was used to ensure that the husband's name would be passed down to future generations. See, if you're married to a woman and you died, and then she married some other guy, took his last name and had kids, now all of a sudden, what happened to your name? It's done. Your name is not going to be passed down. Your, your name will not move on. Your lineage the, is over. The line is dead. Now, why would this matter so much to the Sadducees? Why do they care so much about this? Well, if you think about it, here's why. Since they didn't believe in afterlife, since they didn't believe in life after death, this was how you lived on. This was their version of eternal life, of immortality. You lived on through your family name being carried forward by your children. So to die with no children, like the Sadducees say in verse 28, it meant your your family line would stop. And for a person with a non-resurrection Sadducean worldview, this was tragic. So that's the first way this law started, first thing this law got focused on. Second, this law also ensured the dead brother's assets, not just his name, but his assets would would live on in the family. When the wife married the brother, now all of a sudden, all of the dead brother's stuff, his money and land and livestock, they would also now stay in the family. So again, instead of primarily being about protecting the widow, protecting these vulnerable women, the Sadducees... And this culture in general began to use this law to ensure and protect a family's security and status. This law that was all about helping vulnerable people became about security and status for privileged people. Now, again, if there's no resurrection, if this life is all there is, then that makes perfect sense, right? If after you die, you just cease to exist and this world is... All that matters and is all that's, that's ever going to be, and this is the to- sum total of reality, then getting and keeping as much position and power and wealth and status as you possibly can in this world makes complete sense. I'll put it in modern terms for you because, friends, Sadducean philosophy is alive and well today. If all we are is neurons, here's how it goes. If all we are is atoms and cells, and when we die, we just go back into the ground and cease to exist, then eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we'll die. It's always good when you can weave a Dave Matthews quote into your sermon. Live for the moment and have all the fun and pleasure you can. Because right and wrong and morality are all just relative and insignificant in the grand scheme of things if this world is all there is. And so taking advantage of others, you know, exploiting the vulnerable, go for it. There is no right or wrong. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no ultimate good or justice. So get what you can while you can. You see, this is the worldview of the Sadducees. And because it's their worldview, they've taken a law that was primarily about protecting women, protecting widows, and they have made it about using widows to gain security and status for themselves. So now think how significant and amazing this moment is when Jesus steps up and goes toe-to-toe with these guys, toe-to-toe with this philosophy. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they poke fun at him, 
to prove how silly a resurrection, eternal life worldview is. And Jesus is now going to flip it around. He's going to flip it around on them and he's going to show them and show us how damaging and destructive it is to adopt a life and worldview without resurrection at the very center. How destructive and damaging it is to adopt a life and or worldview without resurrection at the very center. Jesus is showing us here how when we don't take eternal life seriously, there are significant implications. Verse 34, Jesus replied, this is his answer, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. All right, before we dive really deep into Jesus' response here and what he's saying, I just want to acknowledge that at first glance, this passage can kind of seem like a bummer. It's like a, like a wet blanket passage, isn't it? At least for many of us, right? No marriage in the resurrection, I mean, all this work and effort that I've put into this relationship, I finally have him trained, my wife is thinking, and then you're telling me that it's just all going to end? This is like a wasted time, right? Or maybe some of you are thinking, like, I made a bad choice, and now I'm off the hook for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Like, whatever you're thinking, um, I guess it can go either way there. Uh, you're wondering, what's this really mean for marriage? And why all the work and energy and focus on marriage and oneness and the sacred unity if it's all just going to come to an end? Now, I know some of you are here would be super bummed if that happened. And maybe you're single and you've been always hoping to be married and there's this kind of thought, well, maybe I'll get married in eternity and Jesus seems to squelch that. And uh, hopefully you're, the person you're married to, you're kind of thinking, man, I, if I didn't get to spend eternity with that person, I would be so, so sad, so heart-wrenched, right, guys? This is when you're supposed to nod and say yes. It's Valentine's week. Go for it. Like, don't blow it right here. Um, well, I want to look at what Jesus says here specifically because I do not think this passage means what we have traditionally said that it means. Here's what Jesus says. Let me take you a layer deeper. And talk about what he's really challenging us with. Here's what Jesus says in verse 35. Listen to his words. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, the next age, the resurrection age, and in the resurrection from the dead, life, the life after, right? Listen to these words. Will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Notice that he doesn't say they will not be married anymore. He uses a very specific phrase. He says, we'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. And friends, this is language that specifically describes the Jewish system for marriage and what it had become all about. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. This corrupted system will not exist in heaven. The set of values represented by the way people are marrying and given in marriage in our world, and, and specifically Sadducees, in your worldview, it's not how it's going to be in the world to come. You see, the Jewish culture of marriage, friends, um, was a huge part of a person's social standing. Marriage and social standing had become very intricately linked. It wasn't like, you know... I love you, you love me, when I'm around you I get a butterfly and we seem to be a good match and we get along and our parents even like each other and maybe we should get married, this is going to be love forever. It's not how marriage worked in the first century. People 
did not primarily get married because they loved each other. They got married in the first century for the purpose of making connections. They got married for the purpose of moving up in society. And specifically for the parents of daughters, marriage was this huge opportunity to use your daughter to either A, collect a really sizable dowry, or B, make a good connection for your family and move up in social status. So this this institution of marriage and oneness and togetherness that God has, has instituted, the Jewish culture has taken and said, hey, let's make our daughters pawns and our plan to gain more power and privilege and status in this world. Awesome, right? Awesome way of treating your kid. Sounds great. You don't love him. He's kind of ugly and he has bad breath, but you know what? You're going to marry him because it's going to help the family. Bad deal. All right. Some of you are like, that feels personal to me. Sorry. Um, and, and this may seem foreign to us, but really it's not. Because if, you've, if any of you are watching The Crown, or if you've watched Downton Abbey, or any shows about high society Europe all the way up into the early 20th century, you'll know that up until, you know, inside of 100 years ago, this system was alive and well. People marrying and giving their daughters in marriage for security and status and money. That's the motivation. And so friends, let me pause and just say this. So what will the marriage relationship look like in heaven? I don't know. And I don't think Jesus tells us here. It's a mystery. Um, But I certainly don't think he's saying that when you get to heaven, you're not going to be married anymore and you may not even remember that you were married and you won't even know your wife and your relationship with him or her will be just like it is with everybody else. I don't think that's what he's saying. It may be that way, but I do not think that's what he is saying here. What I believe Jesus is saying to us in this passage, what's important for us today is this. In the kingdom of God, marriage will not involve, people will not care about, it will not be a priority to... Use other people, vulnerable, marginalized, less advantaged people to increase one's social standing or climb the ladder of power and privilege. It's not how it works when God's in control. You see, what Jesus does here is brilliant because he takes this question about marriage and he flips it around to teach on and challenge the Sadducees about their preoccupation with their social standing Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, your priorities in this life are all wrong. This is why, by the way, Luke tells us at the very end of this passage that the people are blown away by what he says. They just they have nothing else to say. They're shocked. They're, they're impressed. They're like, wow. Not because Jesus just said people aren't going to be married in heaven. That's not why they're shocked. They're shocked because Jesus flips this whole thing on the Sadducees and challenges their entire way of life. Their whole focus, their whole worldview, he's saying, is wrong. And friends, hear this. He might be challenging us with the same thing. We might have something to learn along with the Pharisees here as well. You Sadducees live as if this life is all that matters, which makes sense since you don't believe in the resurrection. But if the resurrection is real, then your whole way of life and all your priorities should change. If the resurrection is real, then your whole way of life and all your priorities should look nothing like the priorities of people who are simply living for this World. And now Jesus will tell them why. He will tell them why they should be living radically different lives than the ones they are. Verse 37, 
But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses shows that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. So Jesus is such a clever debater. Uh, it's fun to debate Jesus, but just go in knowing you're going to lose. Just, just go ahead and do that because he will win every single time. And what he does here is sheer genius. He says, all right, guys, I'll argue with you on your terms. I'll play the game your way and I'll still win. You brought up Moses. Speaking of Moses, you remember how they bring up Moses at the beginning of the passage? Moses says this. He says, speaking of Moses, remember the time that Moses came upon that bush that was burning but wouldn't burn up and he goes up and then he hears the voice of the Lord speak to him and God says this to him. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And, And Jesus' point here is this. He's saying... Notice that God doesn't say, I was the God of your fathers. Now, these guys are long dead. I was the God of your fathers. He says, I am the God of your fathers. These guys have been dead a long time, but God is saying, I am still presently their God, which means what? They're alive. They're living. They have been resurrected from the dead. There is eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'll show you from your own scriptures that there is eternal life. Now, this is a little obscure, isn't it? I mean, one might be tempted to ask, why would Jesus, in this moment, not reference a different passage? Um, Daniel 12, or Isaiah, or the Psalms, where the afterlife and resurrection is more explicitly referenced, more directly talked about. Instead of sort of nitpicking over these, these pronouns, or these adverbs, right? It seems a little strange. Why does Jesus do it this way? Yeah! You got it! Yes! A for you. They only recognize the first five books of the Bible. Jesus can't, rec- he can't reference Isaiah or Daniel. They've discounted those. So he says, let me show you right in the very books that you accept that the afterlife, that resurrection is real. And so Jesus affirms resurrection here. He affirms it strongly. He puts it in their face. And he says, Sadducees, here's your problem. You're living life from the wrong premise. You don't believe that the resurrection is real. You don't take seriously that there's going to be another age. You disregard and live like this world is all that there is. And that's your big mistake. See, he says, of course you just care about yourselves. Of course you just care about the here and now. Of course you're doing any and everything you can to get ahead in this life because you believe this life is all that there is. And I have to pause here to say this. To the Sadducees' credit, at least they live consistently with their worldview. You see, a lot of people don't. There's a lot of people, there are a lot of people back then, there are a lot of people today who doubt the supernatural. A lot of people who will say, I don't think there is an afterlife. But hear this, friends. Very few people have the guts to really live as if there is no afterlife. A lot of people doubt the afterlife. A lot of people doubt the existence of God. A lot of people will say things like, I don't believe in all that stuff, but very few people have the guts to really live as if there is no afterlife. You see, if there is no afterlife, if there is no eternity, if there is no God, then none of it matters. Then there really is no right or wrong. 
There is no morality. There is no point to life. If that is really the case, then do whatever you want. Do whatever you need to do to get ahead. Enjoy this life to the full. Don't care about other people, right? Because it's it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. If there is no resurrection, it doesn't matter. Do you see that, friends? And that's why the Sadducees live this way. But most people don't have the guts to really live that way because deep in our souls, ingrained deep into our hearts, I believe because we were created this way, is this knowledge, is this feeling, is this very strong sense, people do matter. It does matter. There is a point. And there truly is right and wrong. You see, it's very hard to live as if there is no afterlife. Jesus says resurrection being true should automatically mean the priorities you have in this life will radically change. And so the question of this passage for us is not, will I be married in the afterlife? The question of this passage for us is not, what will our relationship be, honey, in heaven? Will we have our own house? Will we have to share? Like, how is this going to go? Is there sex? None of that. That's not the question. The question is actually more profound than that. The question of this passage is are we living like Sadducees? Are we living like people who believe this life is all that there is? Are we living just to gain more power and privilege? Do we just float along and use the vulnerable in our society like the Sadducees used women to gain wealth and status and standing? And not just that, friends, it goes even further than that, even deeper. I'd... I'd, I'd say this, if we believe in the resurrection, Jesus is saying here that we cannot and must not stand idly by and reap the benefits of a society that uses the vulnerable for the gain of the wealthy and the powerful. Even when and especially when we are the wealthy and powerful. This is why, friends, as Christians, when we see a group of people being exploited, we cannot stand for it. Why? Because even if it is for our gain, even if it's good for us, we don't just live for the benefits of this world. We live in light of resurrection. We live in light of eternity. Our lives are anything but about how do we get more here and now. We have eternity to live for, and that should change everything. Friends, this is why for Christians... Christians who've put the resurrection at the very center of their theology and life and worldview. This is why for Christians it is not hard to give our money away, our time away, our power away, our success away, our comfort away, our recognition away, our very lives away. Because we do not live for this world. So let me say this. Let me just remind you The current of this world, if you think of life in our world as kind of a river that we're kind of moving, the current of this world, the the flow and direction and pull of our society are all towards living for self, just living for the here and now, just living a Sadducee, there is no erection, give me more power, success, comfort, and recognition life. That's the current of this life. And so let me tell you this, if you're not fighting the current, if you're not paddling upstream in partnership with God, your, your life, your time, your energy, your thinking 
is going to slowly but surely drift into a Sadducean existence. An existence where your life is really just all about you. Getting more here, getting more now, focusing only on this world and this life and pretending that it is all that there is. And so this morning as we close, I just want to give you one very simple biblical way to fight that pull, to fight that current, to resist the tractor beam of Sadducean living. It's a very simple word. Serve. Give your time. Give your energy and money and passion to ministry that benefits the gospel and the kingdom and others and has nothing to do with self-advancement for you. You see, there's so much power in that. The Bible talks about it over and over again. That when we give our lives for something that doesn't feed the current of this world, we fight that tendency and we begin to live for something more. We begin to live for resurrection. We begin to live for eternity. And hear me real clearly today. Because this is not a simple thing. It's very complex. But what I am not saying is that if you serve in church, if you will just serve in church, then now you can be free with the rest of your life to live for yourself. Right? So, oh, I can serve in church and I can go home and live the rest of my life all for me. Right? It's not the message. not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, what I believe the Bible says is this. Serving in community will lead to a life of serving individually. Serving in community should lead to a life of service individually. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Worship. We come here on Sundays. We come in the room and there's some songs played and we enter into worship, right? And we all know or should at least know that the four songs we sing here together on Sunday morning is not the totality of worship. Worship for a Christian is our entire lives. Everything we say, do, think, every way we respond, every activity and action and thought and feeling in our lives is a way of worshiping God, exalting God, saying, God, you are the greatest, you are Lord, you are King, right? All of life is worship. And yet we come here and we sing songs on Sunday and we call it worship. Why? Because in this time of singing... Together, as the body of Christ, we declare explicitly with our mouths that which we want to live implicitly with our lives throughout the rest of the week. So the explicit helps the implicit, and the implicit informs the explicit, but they are both central parts. It's the same with serving, same with serving in the body of Christ. You don't serve here to check your serving box. You can go on and live selfishly. You serve here explicitly as part of a community so that you can be motivated to live a life of service individually, a life of service in your family, a life of service in your neighborhood, a life of service in your office, a life of service with your friends, a life of service with your enemies. Right? That's
that's the way it works. But you cannot take one piece away. That's what so many people want to do these days. I don't need the church. I'll just do it on my own. And yet the Bible says, false. We need the church. We need the community. We need the accountability of gathering together on a regular basis to do something and put our energies and efforts and passions and time into something that's not about me, but it's about the kingdom. It's about God. It's about his purpose and plans and the lives of others. That is so essential. And so today, friends, we just want to encourage you in that way. Pastor Matt mentioned it. We have an event today called We Serve Here. And it's not just so that we can get more volunteers at church and take up more of your time. That is not the point. The point is, don't live like a Sadducee. Don't just live for yourself. Don't get into a debate with Jesus where he has to look at you and say, you're living as if resurrection isn't even real. You're just living for you. He says, live for the kingdom. Be a part of my family. Be a part of ministry that advances my plans and purposes in the world. Friends, there's so many things you could do. There's so many people you could serve. Just here at Cedar Mill, you could be a part of a ministry serving the homeless or the hungry or refugees. People in the prison system. People just out of the prison system. You could... Get involved in lives of shut-ins, people who are lonely and facing the end of life. You could get involved with our children, the little ones that we saw on the video who need to be taught about the love of Jesus. A children's ministry is in desperate need of people, not just to fill slots, but who will invest in the lives of kids. You can get involved with our youth. Our youth ministry, I, I, I believe, is going to be like the future of this church. But our middle schoolers and high schoolers need leaders, not just to show up, and fill a slot and babysit, but who will invest in them, who will be real with them and transparent with them and honest with them and talk to them about what it means and what the joys and struggles and difficulties and and high points are of walking with Jesus in this world. People who will just sit and listen and care and show up to their events and encourage them. Our youth need that. Or or maybe you could get involved with Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings around here, um, it's a big morning. A lot goes into it. It's not just about me. It's not just about Pastor Matt. We don't, our sermon is a very small part of this thing. We're a family. You could use your gifts to help Sunday morning be this amazing gathering time where we exalt God and proclaim His truth and bring people into the kingdom, into the family and welcome them. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality or teaching or some other gift that could be used right here. You're coming anyway. You might as well come and not just take in and not just critique the service and I didn't like the sermon. And the, come and serve. Come and like be a not Sadducee. So many ways to be involved with not being a Sadducee. You see, we all must fight this tendency we have this tendency we have to live for self, to live just for this world, and to be fooled into thinking that this world is all that matters and it's all that there is. You see, in light of the fact that life with God and His kingdom is available to you eternally, in light of the fact that there is a God who loves you, in light of the fact that there is life after death, because of resurrection, friends, you can live for more. You can live for eternity. You can live for the King and His kingdom. So today... We're going to dismiss our time in the worship center, but church is not over. I'm going to ask you to hit the gym. Some of you just need to walk around and be encouraged at how non-Sadducean our church is, at how many people we are actually living for. Some of you need 
to reevaluate where am I serving? Am I really, am I really investing? Am I really passionate? Am I giving myself to this? Or am I just filling a slot? Maybe it's time to up your ante or maybe find a different place that's a better fit. Some of you, you're, you're coming on Sundays, but you're not really a part of the ministry of Cedar Mill. Don't miss out. We need you and you need us to not be a Sadducee. So in just a second, I'm going to say amen and then you will be free to go to the gym and see all the wonderful things God's doing. Amen?